0: McCoy on the show of Bloomberg News and also Zester Daily. Hello, how are you?
1: I'm very good. How are you?
0: Nice to see you.
1: Nice to see you too.
0: So you once told me that you viewed wine as a window onto adulthood. What was that like for you as a child?
1: You know, my parents did drink wine, which was unusual enough in earlier decades. But the reason I viewed it as a window into adulthood was that Only adults seem to get the glass with the stem, and only adults, you know, ood and odd. And the first time I ever felt like oohing and aahing was uh, when I was fourteen with my dad, who took me to a French restaurant in Chicago called Jacques, and which is what all French restaurants I think were called at the time.
0: It was either that or Chez Jacques, right? One of those two.
1: Yeah, one of those two. This didn't have the Chez. But it did have on the menu, on the wine list, Puy we say. And my dad was a fan and ordered a bottle and told the waiter to bring a glass for me. And he then went about telling my father that he, the waiter, was not going to be allowed to pour a glass of wine for me since I was clearly underage. And my father said, that's okay, I'll pour it. And that was okay then. Uh, whether it's okay now, I don't know. And I remember sitting there, and I was quite dressed up for a 14-year-old, I think, and thinking, this is fantastic. Here I am, and I'm drinking wine, and uh, I, I'm practically a grown-up right now. So it was always became, it was a very good memory for me. You know, my dad was a terrific guy that, whom I really cared about and uh I think that moment sort of seemed so unbelievably special. So I think you always sort of view wine in some way through the first time that it's meaningful to you. And that was all about being feeling treated very much like a grown-up. So even today, if I'm drinking a glass of wine, I think, hmm, maybe I really am grown up.
0: Did you ever get a chance to visit the waiter after he lost his job for serving <laughs> a minor, find out whatever happened to him? Or?
1: I have no idea whatever happened to the waiter, and I'm sure he did not lose his job.
0: <laughs> so what happened? Where did you go to school?
1: Well, I went to school first in, in Winnetka, Illinois, on the north shore of Chicago. Then I went to the University of Pennsylvania uh, in Philadelphia. And while I was there my junior year, I took the did the famous junior year abroad and lived in Paris at exactly the right age, I believe, to live in Paris, which is 20. Why do you say that? Well, because you're just wide open at that point you're looking at the world as a new place that, and trying to find where you fit into it and what you care about. And, you know, in some ways, you almost shouldn't be going to school. You should just be living or something. And mostly what I was doing was not going to school, even though I was supposed to, but I was certainly living. And wine was very much a part of student culture in Paris in ways that it certainly wasn't at the University of Pennsylvania. Food was important, and I I remember the student restaurant. I was shocked you paid this astonishingly low amount of money for a ticket, and you went to one of the many student restaurants that were around Paris, and you were assigned... Two, you could pick two and
0: Jacques or Chez Jacques. <laughs>
1: right. But all of them had, you know, quarter bottles of wine. Your ticket bought you not just a four course meal, but also a quarter of a bottle of wine. So that, you know, it was great.
0: What was it like buying wine in France? I mean, Outside of restaurants.
1: Expensive. It seemed expensive then, but really it was not very expensive. But there were a lot of interesting things. For example, on my my street was a Nicola wine merchant shop, a very small one. And the first time I went in and bought a bottle of Beaujolais, which I did know about, and I was told, well, don't forget to bring the bottle back. And I'm thinking, oh, all right. So when I brought it back, they said, okay, and just took it and went and filled it up in the back room and put another cork in it, bashed it down. And I had not realized that this was going to happen, but you got a significant discount if you brought the bottle back. So I brought the bottle back, uh, and I drank a lot of Beaujolais that came out of that cask in the back room.
0: Oh, I would have hoped for Petrus, you know. You bring the bottle of Petrus back, they <laughs> fill it for you. It's amazing. <laughs> Endless supply when you live Endless in France. Endless supply.
1: That yeah. would have been fantastic. But, you know, it was a different kind of thing when you think about what I think now or even early, a lot earlier about people who went to Oxford and Cambridge and how they so many people that I've known learned about wine While they were at Oxford or Cambridge and their college had an amazing cellar that they were privileged to have taste from, you know, my my beginnings were much more humble (laughs) than that.
0: Maybe that allowed for a keen eye for value later on.
1: It's a nice thought. I I think I would have rather had, I can rationalize it, but I still would rather have had a few more high-end experiences.
0: So, what decade was that that you were in France?
1: I was in France in the late nineteen sixties.
0: So that was kind of a revolutionary time. It was very revolutionary. Cops and stuff like that. It was very revolutionary.
1: I was in a strike. You know, I was in a newsreel standing on top of a car that my parents actually saw this, and I got a frantic phone call like, "Why are you standing on top of a car in the middle of the street?"
0: What did you tell them? Like It wouldn't I start, s- <laughs> and so no.
1: I said, Well, I got swept up in a strike march, and so I just was trying to get out of the crowd, something like that. <laughs> but, um, uh,
0: you know, if you bring the car back, they refill it for you.
1: <laughs> but what
0: were you up to? You were,
1: I was studying French and I was studying literature, it was part of. Getting a degree in French and English and in literature. And, uh, you know, but mostly I was traveling. I was seeing things that I'd never seen before. And it was one of the best years of my entire life, partly because I was, it was just at the time when I was really thinking about what I wanted to be when I grew up, you know?
0: And how are you starting to answer that question? Uh, Now? (laughs) Well, either one.
1: No, I always wanted to be a writer. So for me, it was a very good time. I have copious notebooks still that I wrote in every single day while I was there about what was happening and short stories that I was trying to write. And so... There was a lot of scope to write things down. Uh, you you had a lot of things that were happening. So, and th- what you were thinking about. And even though when I look back now and I read it, I just think, oh, oh my god, you know, no one better ever see this. Still, it was it, it moved me along on learning how to look at things, learning how to th- see. Where there was a story, where, you know, there was something that I might be able to contribute that was different from what everybody else was doing. That's, I think, what you're doing when you're 20 and into your 20s and maybe longer than that, you know.
0: And eventually you headed back to the West Coast of the United States. How did you make it there and what happened?
1: Well, I came back. I came back to Penn. I graduated. I then went to London. I went to grad school. And then I came back from to the U.S. from grad school, lived in New York, and uh, met somebody that I got married to, and he got a job teaching philosophy on the West Coast. So we were living in Oregon, and we really got into the—there wasn't really a Weinstein. It's always amazing to me now when I go to Oregon and I think about how there we were, and one of the people in my husband's department was said he was starting to make wine, and we just thought, oh God, he poured some wine for us that he had made. It was appalling. And we just thought, this state has no future, which is why I'm not a rich person, because I don't make very good <laughs> predictions about things like that. But we became part of a group of people that formed a tasting group, and we tasted really quite seriously. The interesting thing, as I look back, was how sexist the whole thing was. You know, no, not my husband, who in fact mentioned to me when, after the first event, he said, God, you know, I think it's a little sexist, don't you? And I said, well, Yes. Like, now, it was led by a, a young prof who uh, seemed to know more than ev- everyone else and who would always remind everyone at the beginning, now, next time, women, don't wear any perfume. I think, you know, hey, what about that aftershave? So, but he was good because we bought wine in common. We did all the things. That I now tell people to do, if you want to learn about wine, get a group of friends, everybody bring a different wine, taste them all together. You know, we did all that, that sort of thing. And it was interesting how, how quickly you start making all these distinctions for yourself. And out of all of that, we decided to, well, we had a few parties, and one of the wines that we love to serve was Mayakama's. And we would buy this, believe it or not, in the health food store because the health food store was also the wine store in this town, which was Corvallis. And we just loved this wine. And part of it was the label, which is so gorgeous. And we decided we should drive down and we should go to visit Mayakamas and we should see the Napa Valley and we should, you know. And I remember we called up. Bob Travers, just out of the blue, and said, we would like to come and see you. We love your wine. Could we come and see the winery? Oh, sure, come, you know. He didn't know us. he never heard of us. We weren't anybody, really, at all. And he was just so generous and kind and let us taste out of the barrel. We had no idea what we were tasting, really. But that was sort of the pattern of of almost every single person, That we visited, which was we would say things and they would say, Oh, well, that's interesting. And we'd think, Oh, okay, so what we've just said makes no sense at all. (laughs) But I think that uh, it was a wonderful time to be going around and learning about wine because there weren't very many people doing it in the Napa Valley. I mean, there was one place to stay, and that was the El Bonito Motel. And we did not stay in the El Bonito Motel. We stayed at the Bothanapa campground. But even then, the restaurants that we went to, they they had French wine in the restaurants. They had a little bit of BV, a little bit of Inglenook, and that was it. So even though there were a lot of other wineries. Robert Mondavi's, you know, winery was there, you know, there were a lot of other people, height sellers and so on, but they weren't really being sold in the town's restaurants. I do remember that we toured one place where the guy who took us around was wearing a cowboy hat and a string tie, and it wasn't a joke. <laughs>
0: So you had the idea to do some writing about California. Why?
1: Well, we went down, we traveled around, we visited all sorts of people. Because we'd had the idea after the, our first trip, oh, wow, nobody on the East Coast knows about this, which is partly, was partly true. And we should write a few articles or something. And so we started gathering information. We took notes and visited people and tasted. And, you know, we still have a first edition of the book that came out of that. It's always salutary to look at and remember that everybody starts learning someplace. And it's partly why when people who talk about how terrible it is that there are people online Blogging and writing, and they don't know very much. I was think, "Well, You're so what?" You're talking about me now. No, you know, you know, too, you know, more than I do.
0: I'm kidding. <laughs> I like to make fun, you know. But what what were some of those visits that stood out for you? I mean, well,
1: st- visiting Joe Heights certainly stood out because Joe Heights was very grumpy, and we had left and it had been a little bit grumpy, but as we were leaving. We actually ran into a guy named Dave Breitstein and his wife, Judy, who owned a, a retail shop in Southern California. And we had, run, we had run into them a few times before in a restaurant and so on. And they were, they were very, very, you know, friendly and so on. And uh, so as we were coming out of Joe Heights, they were going in to see Joe Heights. and they Did said, you warn them? Yeah.
0: <laughs> Grumple still skins inside. Careful what you say. <laughs>
1: right. So I about just as we were nearly to our car, Alice Heights came out and she said she said, Don't go. Why don't you stay for dinner? And we went yes. <laughs> we were and it turned out that um Joe Heights had just said said something about our visit to Dave and Judy, and Dave said, well, why don't you invite them to dinner? Joe said, well, who are they? And he said, they'll do something sometime. You know, they're nice. So, (laughs) So we had dinner, and it was an amazing dinner with all sorts of really fantastic wines, that we hadn't tasted, and we did mention to Joe Heights that we had bought some. We were very fond of Z eighty two Chardonnay, but we had also bought some Martha's Vineyard, which we said to him was it's awfully expensive. It was seven fifty a bottle, and he we said but we bought it anyway. He said he gave us a bottle to take away. He said well. This will make it cheaper <laughs> because you're getting more bottles for the same price, which was very generous of him. And another really great visit, which was really funny, was we went to visit Ridge, and this was this was Dave Benyon was the one who took us out to dinner, which was also very generous, and served us some wines. And I remember the restaurant said to, as soon as we came in, one of the the waiter shouted into the kitchen, hey, guys, one of the head honchos of Ridge is here. Make it really good, you know, and that was <laughs> great fun. But afterwards, he invited us over to his house to meet his wife, and he said, well, let's all go in the hot tub. So I, being an East Coast person, said, well, you know, I mean, I don't have my bathing suit. He said, why would you need a bathing suit in a hot tub? So here we are without our clothes on in the hot tub with Dave Bennion and his wife, and we're drinking all these old Ridge wines. (laughs) And we thought maybe we could live in California. This is really fantastic. So, you know, people were like that then because there weren't so many people, as I said, And we've, I don't know, we just sort of felt this is a great world. We should write a whole book. Maybe we could write a whole book about this. You know, I don't think we thought at the time that it was ever going to be something that went any further than that. But when we moved back to New York and we did get an agent and we did sell the book and we did start writing for New York Magazine and so on, we realized people would pay us to write about wine. Now, it seems crazy now when everyone is complaining that no one is paying anyone to write about wine. But um, at the time, there weren't that many people writing about wine. Uh, so that was sort of a beginning, but we didn't want to trust to that. So we both also did other things. And it just seemed that that became a more and more important part of what we were doing together, and. What ended up happening was that after the book came out, we got a really, really great review from Bill Rice, who was then running the whole Washington Post food section, and we ended up meeting him. And then when he left to go to be the editor of Food & Wine, he he called us up and said, you know, would you come in and talk to me about being the wine editor f- for this, for the magazine? And we said, okay. And he said, you can share the job. You can do it however you want to do it, you know, but uh, just get the job done. You're responsible for this amount of the magazine. And he was really a mentor in many ways because he was a really fantastic journalist. He always knew the questions to ask, but he also was very generous in that he gave us a lot of leeway he never said you have to do it this way you know he they there was a process by which articles got circulated he let us not do that with our authors he told us we could get whoever we wanted to write for the magazine he would make suggestions but he would let us you know go after people we had it we had Kingsley Amos wrote for for us you what know what was that like well he it was pretty interesting because the piece came in and it was terrible and i was usually charged with interacting with agents authors and so on And I called up his agent. I said, you know, we paid for Kingsley Amos. We didn't get Kingsley Amos. This is not, I mean, does he think he's slumming for an American magazine? This is not Kingsley Amos. We want funny. We want, you know, all these different things. They've
0: given you Popper Amos? Is that what happened? (laughs) They've given you?
1: Yes.
0: I want at least Prince Amos. At
1: least Prince Amos. (laughs) I mean, anyway, it came back and it was good. It was that funny and, you know. So, the chance, though, to work with people like that was was really important.
0: Who else did you work with?
1: Does the, do you know Robert Daly at all? He wrote The Prince of the City and so on. And he, he loved wine. And he we got him to write a bunch of articles for us. We sent him to Saturn and... He wrote a, a piece that I still think unfortunately is accurate, which was all about like how bad is it down here anyway, because no one is buying these wines and how are these people surviving? It was a it was a terrific piece.
0: About was, Saturn. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, it was wonderful. And you know, we got another guy who is a veteran you know, journalist whom nobody would have heard of, but he was he'd he'd been the editor of True Magazine, which was a men's magazine w in the um I don't even know when. I do remember that my dad got it, so it was still around, you know, when I was little. And He was fantastic. We sent him to Japan to do a story about sake. The only sad thing was that he told us that when he had been at True, that the average price that he paid for someone to write an article for him was $10,000. Oh, my God. Exactly. That's what I thought. (laughs) And that he had paid as much as $40,000 for an article.
0: Are you sure it wasn't like in Japanese yen or something? I am sure. Because <laughs> that's like ten dollars or something. I paid forty thousand yen. And then and then the guy bought lunch with it, you know.
1: Right. Right. So we did not pay him ten thousand dollars, but he was willing to do it anyway.
0: I've definitely used that line though. You know, other publications pay me $10,000. <laughs>
1: I know. That's a good thing to,
0: you know. Just toss, toss out casually. You yeah, know what to I mean? toss
1: out casually. Well, you could use Hong Kong dollars, couldn't you? <laughs> I mean, that's not <laughs> I don't know. That wouldn't be too bad. But so, I mean, Jancis wrote for us. I've heard of her. You've heard of her? What was that relationship like when
0: you first met her?
1: Um, well, how did we first meet her? We actually first met her. Not when we were getting her to write for us, but because when she came to New York, she had met Alex Bespilov, and Alex was a really good friend of ours. And so he decided to have a dinner while they were here and invited us. So it was, and they had just had a baby, and they were traveling around with this baby.
0: Jancis and Nick.
1: Jancis and Nick. And they... You know, we said, Wow, you know, are there any, is there anything you need? She said, Oh God, you know, we're having a hard time, you know, taking a baby around. So I said, Well, we'll bring something. And so we brought this little bouncy thing that our son had grown out of. And we thought, well, they if you're traveling around, if you could at least have this bouncy thing where you could it was quite simple, you could take it apart, it could be packed, then at least they'll be able to bounce this baby. And uh, get some sleep. So that worked out. We had a great dinner together. Lots of fun, and we.
0: What was she like as a younger person?
1: She's very much like she is today. Is that true? I mean, yeah, I think so. I, my my memory of her is very much like that. She's she's very open, very interested in everything, very. Anxious to learn about whatever there was to be learning about at that time and that place, taking notes copiously, yeah, I don't think she she's more assured in her manner now, but rather than i mean she's learned to be very a very good public person in giving a talk or she had more. She has more assurance, authority. You feel that authority more.
0: That's what I usually feel. You know, women, Britain. You know, yeah. They had Queen Elizabeth. They're strong women figures. Strong
1: women. And I think that, you know, it's interesting as I look back, I see how few women were in the wine world, really. I mean, one of the earliest people, one of the people that I met who had a very big impact on me who was in the wine world was Zelma Long whom I met very early along when she was at Simi. And that made a difference to me to to feel that she was so accomplished and had such a feeling, seemed to feel very secure about her place in this world. And another person that I met early along that had the same thing in a totally different way, Serena Sutcliffe, sure. who... Very authoritative. Certainly when I first met her, had, you know, I mean, I do remember an amazingly amusing lunch with Serena and David and...
0: David Peppercorn?
1: Yeah, David Peppercorn and Michael Broadbent. They were all saying things about America that, and American wine that I didn't personally agree with at the time. But... They were all very grumpy.
0: That sounds like they were trying to get your goat. That's what that sounds like. Yes,
1: they were trying to get my goat. But they were also complaining because the Americans were buying up all the 1982 Bordeaux. Mm -hmm. And the prices were going up and it was the fault of Americans. And everyone knew that the British really understood Bordeaux and they should get the first crack.
0: Well, don't we say that now about the Chinese? Absolutely. Of? I mean, it's kind you of know, it's you the
1: know, same thing. Oh, look, when the goes shoes around, on the comes other around. foot. You
0: know? <laughs> right. you know. So you work with Hugh Johnson, and what might have been the glory days for Hugh? What was that like?
1: Hugh at that time was, which was, we're talking about the mid '80s now. Hugh was very much the authority. I mean, he was the most important person in the wine world. I would you know, in terms of writing about wine. And he, you know, he's a very lovely guy. He also is a really, really good writer. So, you know, it was a pleasure to work with him. It's a pleasure to read his books. You know, you still feel that that turn of phrase. He'll capture a wine and just sort of a line, and you think, ooh, that is really, really exactly on target. But he was very much the big person, you know, the one that everyone was competing against in some way. And not that there were that many people writing. I mean, you know, we did our column every month. We wrote articles all, all the time. And and probably in just in word count, we were writing more than most people. There was Frank Pryor. And Frank Pryle had had also had a big name, but Frank was, in some ways, he wasn't that interested in wine. He was more interested in the people that he was going and talking to. And I remember when he had a hiatus from writing about wine, and he covered the, um, well, he was covering some war, and he was so happy. To be doing that. You know, he started out as a journalist, and the only reason he started writing that column was they needed to have, have a wine column in the Times, and they said, who knows about wine? And Frank was drinking wine, and, you know, he liked France, and he said, well, I'll do it for a while. So he wasn't a food person like Bill Rice, who deliberately left behind the kind of journalism, more general journalism that he had been doing, political journalism mostly, to actually go to cooking school and become knowledgeable in the field of food and wine. So that that's an example. So there weren't, you know, there was Vintage Magazine. Many stories I won't go into about that. But... You know, I think it was really in about the mid-'80s when there started to be much more going on because by that time the Wine Spectator had been around for a few years and had gone from being like this little paper handout practically, not to what it is now, but to a bigger format. And Marvin had great plans for it that have clearly that clearly came to fruition. and But Bob Parker was only in the mid-'80s just beginning to be really known and talked about because that was when the 82 Bordeaux came on the scene. So,
0: Did you, you know, know him back then?
1: Yes. In fact, that was one thing that Bill Rice had suggested. He made great suggestions. He said to us, you know, this guy, Bob Parker, is is coming up, going to be in New York tomorrow from... come up from Washington would you guys talk to him you know you've seen his newsletter maybe you could find something for him to do so we did he came in He, I remember he had a whole bunch of half bottles of sauterne that he had just bought and he was very very happy because he had paid a very low price and we talked and he explained about his number system and I just thought this makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> um but I you know he was very energetic and enthusiastic and you know we gave him an assignment to write about jug wines which you know maybe he never forgave us for. But you no know, he wrote he wrote a number of stories you know that were that were interesting about Now I can't remember what all of them were, but he was sort of one of a group of people that we tried to use more than once because they had, for one reason or another, he was very good if you wanted to have somebody assess a lineup of a certain kind of wine, you know, the best, 10 best Chardonnays among X or something. But at the time, Bob Finnegan was much more important than... Bob Parker was.
0: What was Bob Finnegan like?
1: He was he was much more in some ways he was a little more like Hugh Johnson, in that he was probably one of the most he was more important in the US. He lived in San Francisco, he'd gone to Harvard, he had learned to drink wine while he was at Harvard, and had a lot of friends while he was there whose families either had a share in a chateau or had some kind of connection with wine. So he had tasted a lot of really, really good wine and honed his palate on that. And he had then had a career that allowed him to travel quite a bit. And everywhere he went, he would go and visit some sort of wine region or you know, so he was always adding to his knowledge by all of that travel, and so then later he started his newsletter, which was probably the was certainly the most important newsletter in the U.S. at the time. He he was a, he was a very good tennis player, very different from Bob Parker. He was real sort of clothes person in the sense that he always looked. Not I, by saying that, I'm not talking about GQ level, but but he was very conscious of being looking good and wearing interesting clothes all the time. Whereas that sort of distinct contrast with Bob Parker, who has never cared how he looked particularly, uh, but he also had a had a lot of savoir faire. We would say, an interesting guy, who. It was very sad the way he sort of, I, I don't know, I always find it sad if someone climbs to a sort of point and then there's no way but down after that. They they do something, there's something that happens, and rather than just continue on sort of a plane in reputation, they essentially just, because of that one thing, started in a downward sort of track. And that happened to him.
0: Did you ever meet him in the later years? Oh,
1: I did. Yes, several times. And the last time I met him was maybe two years before he died. And he was really quite ill at that point. And he was writing an interesting book about traveling in Napa or something at the time. So
0: he never really gave it up. It wasn't he never like really he said, like, I forget wine and I'm doing something." No, else. no,
1: no, he never really did that, but but uh, he didn't he was in a situation where he didn't need money, so it wasn't as though he was forced into some new occupation, you know for himself.
0: He just wasn't being listened to very much. Hmm. So what happened, and how long were you at food and wine?
1: Well, on staff, I was there for five years, and and it was really one of the really great things, I think, that happened to me, partly because if you have to edit people, you also learn how to edit yourself. And so you become much more critical of your own work, which is really important if you're going to go on and write. And also, it taught me deadlines, that you can't just write it until it's right. You can write it until somebody says, this has to be out of this office in three minutes. And that, I, I think that's something that's very valuable for anybody who wants to write about anything to have. The other thing it did is that uh, it allowed me to travel, to taste with an amazing number of people in a very focused way. So when – and I was focused on on wine all the time. I wasn't focused on wine and writing something else for somebody. I was had to be totally focused on wine. So I think that in terms of just – understanding the world of wine, it was invaluable. And it was also invaluable in terms of learning how to write articles and how to write something that's popular. Not Because I'd come out of an academic background. I'd worked on a PhD. That's a very different kind of writing. And the good part about having that kind of background is that you're meticulous. You have to know where every fact comes from. You have to know, no, it wasn't in a barrel for 13 months. It was 11 months and three days. It, all of those kinds of, that kind of specificity is very important if you're doing academic research and you're very careful about your sources. So that was useful for that. You learn to evaluate Is this important or isn't it important? And in the same way, you learn when you're writing for a magazine and you're writing every month and it has to appeal to people and the dreaded Mark Clements. Maybe no one has ever told you about Mark Clements, but at the time, Mark Clements was the person who went around to every magazine and he had focus groups and surveys on what people read and why. And so he would come every month for a postmortem on the issue. Like, what did people read? What did they read more than once? What did they just look at? And it would even break down to what were the parts of an article that they liked. And so you... Started thinking about these words in a different kind of way, how they were, people were reacting to them rather than what you wanted to say, which is all another valuable lesson. So I think it was really crucial that five years. But then We wanted to move to the country, and we just sort of converted what we were doing to being contributing editors. And that also allowed us to do other things, like we were writing columns for other people then. And we also discovered, I think, that we weren't destined to be a couple that wrote together, especially if you're not in an office, where we traded off a lot, you know, it was allowed us to do other things we wanted to do. But my husband was getting bored really with wine. I was getting more interested as he was getting bored. He said, I like to drink it, but I don't think I want to think about it so much anymore. So for for me, then I was sort of doing a lot of it by myself. And and that Made a difference, too.
0: It feels know? like the scope was pretty large, though. It feels like you could write about pretty much whatever you wanted. As opposed Oh, yeah, to-
1: yeah. We could write about whatever we wanted. I mean, I, I think the thing that I would say now, though, is that when I look at a lot of magazines, I feel that they're very formatted. I don't know if you would agree with that. And they have such a strong personality, as a magazine that there's very little room for an individual voice to be heard within that and and i think that's one of the sad things about a lot of well i would like to say mainstream magazines today because i think that that in in the past magazines were more for the writers mattered more I think today the editors matter more and have more freedom than many of the writers do. But I I mean, eventually I was doing other things. I mean, it didn't make sense for me to still be involved with Food and Wine magazine. I, Bloomberg had asked me to start writing for them in the year 2000, 2001, right around there. And they had wanted a column, and they asked me if I would be interested. Uh, and I said, "Well, I'll write one column and maybe two columns, and then we'll see. You know, you'll see if you like me, and I'll see if I like you." and I loved I, I liked it right away, because I could do things that were much wider than what you really usually see in a food magazine. Not that there's anything wrong with food magazines. They have a certain constituency and they're trying to do a certain kind of thing. And, and they want to offer someone a package of ideas and advice that fits with their particular package. and And I understand that. And they're not going to be successful if they don't. On the other hand, Bloomberg did have a package, and the package was all about money and finances. And the wine piece of of it was like sort of entertainment how you know, to spend it how, kind of yeah, thing. how to spend it like but also how to think about it, and how does it fit into your life if you're a financial person. So I first started writing for Bloomberg Markets, which is their serious financial magazine which has won a lot of awards, including the George Polk Award. It's broken all these amazing financial stories, including the insurance companies that were cheating all the soldiers in Iraq and things like that. So it was interesting to go to that kind of magazine and be the fluff piece, sort of, in that kind of magazine. But it was also great because they would say, well, what do you think we should have in in the wine column? And I would say, well, you know, these people are thinking about finance. I think, you know, I should talk sometimes about wine investment, and, you know, we should talk about wine funds, and we should talk about auctions. No one is writing about auctions, which certainly was true. I mean, it was astounding. Probably
0: also exploding, the market for it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right? Like it was changing times, wine prices are going through the roof, and no one's writing about
1: it, Yeah, and no one was writing about it. Well, they were writing about it, but not, I don't know, they weren't talking about it the way I wanted to write about it anyway. And the whole idea that, I again, it was very instructive for me to be working in a magazine where people are thinking about financial stuff all the time. And there again... Accuracy is very, very, very important. And so everyone, well, people just loved what I did. You know, they were very happy. You know, people would, I didn't fortunately have to go into that office where you have like this much space and you have like four screens in front of you. I think I'd go crazy, but I, I, you know, could be on a long-term contract with them. and
0: Were you supposed to be predictive? Were you supposed to write about trends and make predictions? Because, you know, a lot of times financial writing is, has a predictive element to it, whereas wine writing doesn't. You don't say, like, you know what I think is going to happen so much in the wine world. You right. know what I mean?
1: Well, I, yes, they did want me to be predictive sometimes, as in, you know, which wines are the best buys because they're going to go up in value. However, what I would always get a query from the editor in chief aed, you don't have any money invested in any of these wineries, right? I thought, what does he think? I'm a journalist, you know so. <laughs>
0: right You know, I only got ten thousand dollars for that piece. I mean, how much can I really invest you know
1: so so i mean so the, there was there was that element. On the other hand, I also could mix it up. I had a kind of plan, like, you know, I should do something. Like, I remember doing something about Sicily that was just beautiful. I said, we have to get a really great photographer. This is, like, sweep me away. And so I wrote a whole piece about what was going on in Sicily, which was much less than is happening now. And... I. The photographer did this great job, and we would get these queries from readers who would say, I love that photo of Sicily. I cut it out of the magazine, I put it up so I can look at it while I'm trading, just to think about another world, <laughs> and is there any way I can better get a better copy of this? Which is kind of fantastically nice. I mean, it obviously did t- sweep them away. Um,
0: in a way, you're doing fantasy posters for financial guys. I mean, in a way. You know, because <laughs> way, that's who's reading too, right? They're like, yeah, you know, when I get like, off this working 80 hours a week thing, I'm going to Sicily. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like that thing.
1: Yes. it's a, Because for for a lot of people, wine is the fantasy life. And in fact, one of my m- most popular columns, or at least one of the ones I got the most email about, was when I wrote a story about Jamie Kutch. And this is when Jamie had was talking on Bob Parker's, on the bulletin board on Bob Parker's site, about how he was the banker and he hated his, his job and so on. And then how he finally you know, hey, guys, I'm going to California to make Pinot Noir. I hope my girlfriend will come with me. And then, of course, through that same bulletin board, his entire first year of production is sold out Mm -hmm. from people who say, oh, I wish I could do it, Jamie, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I ended up writing about it. And this The woman who called me and said, you know, have you ever thought about this? And I said, yes, I'm working on it now. You know, what I really want to know, though, is what happened to the girlfriend? And she said, I'm that girlfriend. (laughs) And Kristen, his wife, Kristen Green, is a brilliant PR person. uh, And she has been highly important to success. So,
0: Did you uh, see that change, wineries having PR people? You know, from the days that you were there. Yeah.
1: I to. mean, they, you know, that's such a good question because, you know, I had never thought about it. But yes, it, the whole idea of people having PR people had totally changed. They did have P- PR people at Gallo.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure.
1: You know, but, they, they didn't have, at most places, and certainly some small place wouldn't have a PR person. And, and that has all changed. But so many I mean, it's, it's, so many things have changed, just the way you get a press release now. OK, first, you didn't get press releases. Second, there was the time when every press release started telling you started including in this Bob Parker's score. And his tasting note for the wine, just in case you, yourself, were unable to taste. So, you know, that was, I, I always found that so, I still find it annoying. Like,
0: It seems what, to have bothered you. That sense that you were supposed to like it because uh, it got a high score and well, your opinion didn't matter so much as yeah. a taster.
1: I mean, don't you, does, wouldn't that make you, I mean, don't don't you get annoyed by that or not?
0: It doesn't happen anymore. I remember the era you're talking about, which is you're really talking about a few years ago. When yeah. It was, you know, there was a good decade of it, you know. Yeah. But uh, the key time for me is when I was at a Italian wine tasting and uh, the importer I didn't know very well kind of a fly-by-night uh, Italian importer, and uh I said, I think this wine is corked, and the guy said, well, if there's something wrong with this wine, I'll have to go to Mr. Robert Parker and tell him that his 95-point score is incorrect and that he's wrong, and as you know, Mr. Robert Parker doesn't make mistakes. And I was like, well, I mean, did, did he taste the corked bottle? Because I think this one's corked, is what I'm telling you. So I, it was a really strange encounter. Um That's the one that's always stood out for me, but it sounds like you have similar... Encounters and- yeah,
1: I mean, I, I, I think it's also the idea that you have to tell people what something tastes like before they'll want to write about it, rather than letting them just taste it and decide then if they want to write about it. You know, assuming that a good note from someone will mean that that other people will want to write about it. And maybe this is true, you know. But, yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing that's that. The PR element has changed quite a bit, but so much else has changed. I mean, now, I I can remember when sommeliers were not, there weren't very many. Now it seems like there are sommeliers in almost every place you go.
0: But you did write a book about the Parker problem, or the Parker influence, (laughs) or or the Parker rise, or the Parker something
1: you're going through all the the titles that, <laughs> <laughs> that that were in this long list the parker effect you know you know the parker conundrum you know i mean it sounds like it could be you know one of those matt damon robert ludlum
0: cuz you know, know there's a standard term for it now parkerization but it wasn't around when he wrote the book that wasn't a term really
1: yeah well yes it was around it was around in france and It was it was the the way people would say dismiss a wine would be to say well it's pacherisi. So the thing is with the French and Parker have a kind of love hate relationship, which is what I really discovered when I was writing my book about Bob Parker. And you know it when I look back, I'm pleased at how much has changed. Since I started working on my book. So Uh, when was that? That was probably very late 2002 when I started working on the book. And the book came out in 2005. And so, you know, there's always that year, nine months. So I turned it in in 2004. It came out the following June at the time when i was writing it there were signs that there the whole edifice if you will of the point system the power of parker there there were signs that it, it was going to get a little more shaky but it was still very strong when i started out and I'm very interested in wine as not being just a thing in a glass, just a liquid. I'm much more interested in the wideness of where wine takes you because it it takes you into geology and it takes you into you know business and it takes you into people and it takes you into so many different worlds that if you take one glass of wine and you started thinking about all the, put it in the center and drew lines like a, the spokes of a wheel out, you could, you could create a, a whole world around that glass, um, which would be very interesting, and different pieces would be interesting to different people. But I think that the appeal for me of the whole Parker story was that, It said such a huge amount about the whole wine world. How could this happen? How could you have one guy who has all this power? I mean, this just doesn't happen in most worlds, that one person could be calling the shots. And as one guy in Bordeaux told me, listen, the difference between this number of points and this number of points is 6 to 7 million euros for me. I'm thinking... This is a lot of money we're talking about on one guy's palate. So that whole idea interested me, and I think I told you uh, once that I was in Sicily, not on that particular another trip, where I went into this tasting room of a guy in the middle of the the island of Sicily, tiny little place. He's on his second vintage a table in this sort of ramshackle room and a thing that looks like a two car garage is has spread out a copy of the wine advocate this guy spoke no english he could say hello although he said buongiorno but it turned out later he could say hello and 94 parker and he's pointing and i just thought this is you know, somebody is going to write a book about this, and I want it to be me. And so that was when I decided I would write it. And uh, so it was it was quite a lot of work because I really wanted it to be about the wine world. I wanted it not just to be like a biography of of a person, but also a biography of a world because you... Don't really whether Bob Parker, you know, likes certain things or well, I don't want to put it that way. Whether he reads certain kinds of books or whether he he listens to certain kind of music. Well, that's less important than the effect that his what he does with wine is having on the world. That is the interesting part. If you were just to write his life and not what the world what the reflection back.
0: Cause there were some pieces that just wrote about him as a guy. Okay. This is this guy with these good tasting skills. And yeah, he's a I down mean, to earth guy.
1: He's and a down to earth guy. He's really nice. He gets it, a a likes rock all, music. Yeah. yeah. Like I that mean, kind of people stuff. were writing about that. And even, and even then, you know, people wrote the most incredible things. I mean, people were, he, he really was a very polarizing figure. At that point, when I was working on my book, he had become a polarizing figure. People in... One of the things I always liked was the whole idea that a Beaujolais producer had sued him because he hadn't written about his wine. You know, I mean, when you think about that, okay, you're going to sue somebody for saying nothing? This seems like a very hard case to win.
0: I mean, yeah. I can't think of another figure as polarizing in the history of wine, even in ancient history. It's not like I think, oh well, Columella or something. Like you know, there's some. I can't think of anybody that's polarizing.
1: No, because they're because they don't have enough power or reach, and I think that's the thing. That's he was polarizing because he had power, and if you have power, then. There are some people who don't like that you have that power or that power has effects that you're not happy about. And so in some ways it's very understandable that people would be very angry with him if they felt that the kind of wine that they were making was was given short shrift by him or that he – and you didn't want to change the kind of wine you were making – To please him? Well, you know, you could be pretty angry about that. But I think that one thing people do forget is that people just don't... He didn't grab power. You know, it's not like he invaded a country and put bombs over everyone's head. Everyone entered into the belief about Parker... Because it was to their advantage to do so. I mean, all the people who did. I mean, initially the retailers who thought, Hey, we want to sell this wine, that who's this guy? You know, gave it ninety five point. Well, oh, that sounds good. I'll put that in an ad. And they did. Zackeys, everybody go look at the old ads in the newspaper. It's a you know, that it's astonishing. And of course the Bordelais are were very, very, very happy he was helping to sell their wines. And I do remember Bob telling me that he knew there was a change when Eric de Rothschild flew down from Paris to meet with him when he came to Lafitte. Before that, he'd always met with Chevalier or whoever was there at the time. Uh, So, you know, I think that that those kinds of markers showed what kind of an effect he was having on that that world.
0: But and he kind of had an Andy Griffith persona. Like he had just kind of shuck stumbled into this. Oh, look, like there's this fancy French guy that's going to fly down from Paris to greet me, but I'm just, you know, I'm a regular guy. I mean, you don't think so?
1: I do think so. I think he likes to think of himself as a regular guy and to, in a large measure, he is a regular guy. And I don't know, I mean, I speculate in my book about various how some of the wines and places that he liked and likes were the beneficiaries of that. You know, I mean, by which I mean, for example, the right bank of Bordeaux is much less, it's much more personal and small and, you know, a sort of idea, well, the whole garagiste idea of people saying, well... I can be whatever I want. Okay, maybe my terroir isn't rated as great, but if I work hard and I do all these things right, then I can make a great wine too. That's a very American kind of attitude. Do you and think
0: Bob had an American attitude?
1: I think he has a totally and completely American attitude. And that was the other piece for me that was so interesting because it was a great American story, a great a story of, exactly all these virtues that Americans like to think we have and some of we just, you know partly we do you know the idea that you know you don't have to have grown up in a in a particular kind of way you can learn about something that was not in your family that no you never had no one in your family had ever done before and you can learn about it and you can make it your own and you can be successful if you work hard enough he's like an example of that you know pulling yourself up by your bootstraps if you work hard um uh attitude he's a perfect exemplar and he he does work incredibly hard and did work harder than most people i think myself
0: but were there some downsides to that? Absolutely, American attitude?
1: there are downsides to that that attitude, which are that it's a kind of self reference, isn't it? It's a an idea that you have the answer, that you have a, a kind of arrogance of of rightness, where. What you have decided for the world, I mean, that's the American part, what you have decided for the world is the way it's going to be. And you're going to move in and make that happen. So I think that there is an element of, the, the, a strong element of that in Bob's story as well. The downside of always thinking that you're right, of not being willing to hear other sides to something not thinking somebody's taste could be different from your own and equally valid and, you know, sort of bumbling into things and not really taking, not being conscious of how much your power is shaping things, not being willing to take the responsibility for that. I mean, go in, break it, but don't pay for it.
0: Oh, so I'm, not recognizing it is also not taking responsibility for it. Those yeah. are the same I, things. I
1: mean, I don't think you can take responsibility for something if you don't see it, you right. know. I mean, and so I think all of those things play play into Bob's, uh, what, what happened in various places. Certainly part of that happened to him in Burgundy, where there was a lot of, resistance to his vision of of what wine should be. I mean, you know, when you think about it, wine is was interesting because it also reflects not just the terroir, but in France, they'll tell you that the human is part of the terroir, as you well know. And that human element has its own influence on what you're drinking in the glass that's part of why people like to think about wine not being made in some kind of industrial complex but being made by a person in a specific place but it isn't they just want the place to just make the wine they want the person to be there too so i don't think that bob recognized perhaps or cared, but probably recognize how much that individual person is going to resist somebody telling them, you should be doing this, that, or the other thing. It's one thing if, you know, your importer comes and says, hey, wait a minute, stop filtering. I can't sell that. You know, you need to, this one's better, don't you think? That's one thing. To have a critic... Be saying some of the same things is less appealing. you know it's more like the power from on high. so I think that that he got into a lot of trouble in that kind of way, although there were, are always people who were who there, there were people not not now but at the time, people would tell me when I traveled around interviewing people and I interviewed hundreds of people, that they would come right out and tell me, yes, they were making wine to please Parker. And no, they didn't think it was particularly good. But, you know, they knew exactly what the formula was in order to get, you know, 95 points. And as I remember Randy Dunn telling me that he had, when I interviewed him out in California, we were talking and He said, look, I just was at a tasting like it was the day before or two days before of a new wine that's going to debut. And we were all there to taste it and decide whether it would get more than 90 points from Parker. And if it would get, we thought it would get more than 90 points from Parker, it would be bottled and it would be, that would be its debut. If we didn't think it would get 90 points from Parker, they were going to hold it and then they would just sell it off, and then they would try the next year. Well, that seems to me pretty definitive in some ways.
0: What was it like to write the book? Was it kind of a third-rail topic, and did that have ramifications for how you went about it or what you experienced?
1: Yes, I I think so, because I didn't realize how strongly people felt until I started talking to a lot of people about how they actually felt about Bob Parker and, and what they thought about him. And people would fulminate. I would, I mean, there would be times when I would be speaking on the phone to someone and say, you know, I really have to get off the phone now <laughs> because people would get started talking. I would get emails from people who would say, I hear you're writing a about, book about Bob Parker. You haven't talked to me. You, I, I am someone you should talk to. And people would come out of the woodwork. It was amazing. At first, I was worried that no one would talk to me. And then I found that many people would. One of the only people who would not talk to me about Bob Parker was La Lou Bisloa. And almost everyone else talked to me about Bob Parker. But she would not. But many people along the way were very helpful and gave me very helpful ideas and suggestions.
0: You felt like people wanted to see this book be written.
1: Yes, people wanted to see this book be written, and I I, I remember when I was in Burgundy, I had a meeting with Francois Favely, and he said to me that he had decided that he had never told the to- total story of what happened between... Him and Parker to anyone, but that he had talked to Becky Wasserman, <laughs> and that she said if Ilene's, it will be go- a good book. Thank you, Becky, and you should talk to her. And he said it was time somebody really said what had happened. And the same, th- I heard the same thing from Aubert de Villene, who was very forthright in what he said to me. And said I could use all of it. Everything was on tape. Everything that anyone said to me is on tape, except for one person where it isn't on tape. And that was Parker's, what do I want to say? He worked for her, Hannah Augustini. She was sure, his sure. assistant she in France. She got into a bit of trouble later. She got into a lot of trouble. And I, when I went to see her, I knew that she was only speaking to me because Bob Parker had asked her to speak to me. Or, and she was still working for him then. But she told me I couldn't use a tape recorder. And I said, well, the real reason I use it is for accuracy. You know, I would prefer to use a tape recorder. I'm going to take notes. And it's a good check to make sure I I I'll quote you precisely. Something
0: incorrect. <laughs> yeah. She didn't
1: want to do it, you know. But... There is an example. After five minutes, I thought, (sighs) I think, I I really felt that there was a lot of undercurrent and that a lot of the stories that I had been told by people were true.
0: I feel like one of the themes often that continues today is a lack of empathy from Parker. And it seems like it's funny that the crack started to show after 2001 because 9-11 happened. And I feel like we started to look for more empathy in people.
1: That's so interesting. I I hadn't thought of that, but I, I, I think that's, that's part of it. But I also think that another part of it is that a lot of people, people in the wine world got tired of this. That is, you know, there were people who are making wine who maybe came to making wine because they loved wine or because it was their family's reason for being and who thought, why am I doing this? I don't want to make this kind of wine. I don't like this kind of wine. And and who started to resist more. I think that there were people who were like Joe Dresner, who at one point, you know, met with regularly with Parker to have him taste his wines. But Joe started wanting to bring in more of a different kind of wine and he realized that this you know he wasn't going to get that kind of help that he'd gotten before and that he that was when he was formulating well he wanted the 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 sort of manifesto if you will of the kinds of wines that he wanted to be dealing in and i think that there were more Passionate people in many areas. Like there were more retailers who had points of view, who were young people who had their own ideas about wine and their old dreams. And they clashed with Parker and said, Well, I'm not going to have that kind of shop. You know, there were shops who said, I'm not going to have somebody else's numbers here. I want to tell my customers what I think. It helped that. Retailers were able to pour wines for people so people could try wines for themselves and they weren't just looking at whether there was a little shelf talker. You know, it helped that, that sommeliers became more important and were in more restaurants and that they had other ideas because they, too, had come to wine and learned to love it and had their own ideas. So I think it was a whole bunch of different things that that happened at the same time. Plus, when Parker, it's easy to forget that when Parker started out, people didn't know very much. I mean, you know, you think anybody can be a wine writer now. Well, anybody could be a wine writer then, because all you had to do was know, like... A little bit more than what everybody else knew. And I mean, I think, for example, of this first book on American wine that my husband and I wrote, I mean, the third edition, we knew what we were talking about.
0: A but, good buying tip if you happen to be in the market <laughs> for the book. <laughs>
1: I mean Oh, it's completely out of date now. I mean, no, no, people shouldn't buy it. They could should buy it and find it amusing to look back and see. See who was important then and who and who wasn't even born yet, you know so many wineries are just in the past ten years, five years you know it's exciting, so I think that 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 there was a proliferation of everything. there was more than Bob could cover as well. More wines started coming into the u s indie importers are owed a huge pile of credit like. You know, not just people like Kermit and Joe, and you know, but all the indie importers, like that, are bringing in wine now. They're they're making a huge difference to to everybody. I mean, Andre Tamers. I mean, you know, wow. There are a lot of wines I wouldn't know if he hadn't brought those wines into this country. So it was at the time that Parker was starting out. Also, the wine world was. It wasn't just that there was less knowledge, there was also less wine. And as one of my friends in London, who has an MW, says, "She, I don't know if I could pass the MW now. She passed it in the early 80s, and she said, you know...
0: Is the initials we, of this person J.R.? Or is that no, oh. no, no, no. It's <laughs>
1: actually Rosemary George. Who's okay, like a good friend. well,
0: she's quite... Amazing person.
1: Oh, she's a great person, and and she said she doesn't even know if she could pass it because, really, what you needed to know then was Champagne, Burgundy, Bordeaux, and Port.
0: No, the, the wines, that was what
1: was important.
0: The wines of South of France hadn't become so important before her book. <laughs>
1: no, <laughs> and even things like, you know, all the countries of the world that we now expect to taste wine from. I mean. People were not didn't have access to those wines, so the whole landscape of everything has changed. So part of what allowed Parker to become so powerful was that he started at a point, a particular point in time, and then he had a catalyst event, which was the eighty-two Bordeaux that that suddenly shot him into people's consciousness, and he had the support of the entire Bordeaux wine industry and everybody in the retail industry who wanted to sell wine, pushing, 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 yes, you know. And then people like all the auction houses and the wine investment schemes have depended heavily on Robert Parker's scores as a predictive measure of how much money they can make. And so that added to his power. I mean, look at LiveX. There's a perfect example. LiveX is, I mean, I think Stephen Browett at Farbinders once told me that, that, you know, probably without Bob Parker, he would not be in business. Or at least at that time, you know, he wouldn't have been in business. Because when he started out, he didn't, I mean, he didn't have a huge wine history, he bought what Parker said was the Bordeauxs that on that Parker said were important and gave high scores to, and he sold them. And they sold. So, you know, I mean, a lot of the edifice has been built on money.
0: It's funny you talk about edifice because I often think of the Robert Parker story as like the Robert Moses story. And what essentially brought down both was, oh, we don't want you to have unchecked power to knock down distinctive neighborhoods and build buildings that are all the same. We'd like to keep and preserve this neighborhood even if it has really bad traffic and uh, tougher distribution, basically, as it is. And basically, local activists said, don't knock things down. But Robert Moses wasn't elected by anybody, and he had kind of unchecked power for a few decades to build freeways over things and knock down farms and change communities. But then people didn't like that anymore. And it's kind of the rise of postmodernism, too. That idea that like who you are is distinctive of your place, and if you take that away, then you take away what makes the person unique. So if you just make that place like every other place, and we're all like everybody else, and that sucks, you know that idea.
1: Well, know. nobody wants to believe they're like everybody else, anyway. Do they really? I
0: mean, well, I'm it goes back to the empathy thing, right? Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't mind to find some stuff in myself or that is similar to another person. One of the things I often think about you is that you're more interesting than just the Parker story, which certainly you know, is the big story that people think of when they think of you. But I imagine you're up to a few things in your own since the book has come out. You probably have some new plans to do some writing, because I see you often come out with new columns. So what's going to be the next for you? Where are you headed with your own writing?
1: Before I say that, I I just would like to say what I how interesting I think your comparison with Moses is. I had never thought of that, and I really— I wish I'd thought of that.
0: <laughs> I, I see Alice Firing and that lady who moved to Canada, who championed against Moses, you know, yeah. who wrote the book. I see him as the same person. Yeah. They're the same to me.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I guess what, what, I, what I'm doing now is I spend some time looking around for another really good story. So I'm doing two things. I'm continuing to do my st- – I'm, I'm writing a lot for a lot more people now. Right now I'm working on a big – article for Neil Beckett at World of Fine Wine and Wine and Romance, and why do we have such a, why do we insist that we have to have this romantic idea about wine, which really interests me. Um, Especially if
0: they're going to tell you not to wear perfume, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Which way do you want it? Do you want the romance or not? I don't know. It's so complicated, this wine world.
1: Uh, it's very complicated. And then, for some other people, uh, and I'm continuing to work with Bloomberg and but I've got these two book projects, and one is that someone persuaded me that I should put together a book of columns, and I thought,, oh, don't you think that's a very boring idea? Because, really, when you think about it, wormed over columns, you know?
0: Yeah, but the Gerald Asher books are great.
1: They are good. Of course, he's Gerald Asher. But, you know, I'm me. But but I came up with a way of doing it, which is that I realized that because of the way Bloomberg has let me write, and what they've let me write about, that what's happened, say, since about 2001... I. I like to think of it, probably I'll work with 2000, but 2001, is that in all of those years in the 21st century, the wine world has changed totally. And these are the years in which it has totally and completely changed. And what I realized that had happened is that I had sort of written slices of it Different subjects as they were changing. So I wrote about auctions, then I wrote about auctions when suddenly the prices were going crazy, and then I wrote about auctions when the Chinese were buying everything in sight that was Bordeaux, and then I wrote about auctions when the Chinese didn't like Bordeaux and now they liked Burgundy and were going crazy over Burgundy, etc. So And I wrote a lot about counterfeits, and so I decided that if I could pick themes like money, wine and money, that I could arrange these so that people could see the development of what happened and how things changed. Um, And then I'm writing these essays at the beginning of each section so that they'll a sort of orientation to what you're reading, but they're sort of, I think of them as like dispatches from the wine world. This happened here, then look how it looks two years later, this is how it looks two years after that, etc. So when you think about it, all the, the wine varietals that people are interested in and the number of wines from different varietals that are available has skyrocketed. Things that people are drinking now, they hadn't even heard of in 2001. There are regions that people never thought about, the Jura, which now are very, very hot. So regions have changed totally. Climate change has happened and is happening, and so people have changed many ideas about what they think, about where they have to plant. Before 2001, you did not have very many people talking about terroir. And the whole concept of terroir, yes, people knew wine came from a place, but they weren't focused on the idea of specific terroir. The idea of natural wine and the idea of organic and biodynamic wine. I mean, how many people are writing about cow horns anymore when it comes to biodynamic wine? At the beginning, in like 2001, every story you practically saw I probably wrote one myself, M- had to mention the cow horn. That was, like, so important. And now it's not, it isn't what people talk about when they talk about that. So that's become mainstream, if you will. Those are just some examples of how it's changed, the whole idea of what wine costs, and the whole skyrocketing prices of Bordeaux, and the, you know, sort of, in fact, the fortunes of Bordeaux. Period. Uh, the rise of China is amazing. That's going to have huge repercussions on so much that is going to be in the future. So I'm working on that, and the other book is actually a more narrative book, which I I um and it, I I can't really go into too much about it, but I will say that it's set in Sonoma. It's a very old, old story. I swore after I I did the Parker book and had lots of blowback from some people that I did not want to write about a person who was alive. again. (laughs) I wanted to write about dead people. And so this story is a very old and very amazing story about that no one's ever written a book about, about... You know, two totally and completely improbable people, a cult leader, and this other incredible guy who came together in a sort of utopian cult and eventually created one of the first great wineries of california. And it was at a time when well um, all of Sonoma, the half of Sonoma was taken up with utopian communities. And this was one of those communities. And so it's got great characters. And the best part of it is that a friend of mine out in California, who was going to write a book years ago about one of these two characters, I didn't know her then, but I have since become a friend because I called her. I said, are you still writing this book? I mean, what's the status of this book? And She said, no, I I tried to write it. It never got off the ground. I'm never going to write it. And I said, well, I'm thinking of writing something about these two. Well, actually, there's a third person, too. And she said, oh, great. You can have all my notes. And I just went, what? (laughs) So when I went out and met with her.
0: Talk about utopia. (laughs)
1: Talk about utopia. This is when you say, oh, my God. And so. She said, oh, I have a lot of photographs. I'm going to give, you know, some of them. I'm giving a lot of them to this special room at the, the Santa Rosa University. And she said, well, let's sit down and go through them. She said, oh, good, I have duplicates, one for you, one for the library, one for you, one for the library. And I'm like, you know, can I take you, like, to the French Laundry or something? <laughs> so I feel I'm I'm working hard on that. Of course she
0: said hard no, on that. Sonoma people never go to Napa. Sonoma
1: people don't go to Napa. No. She 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 said that's all right, you know. We'll go somewhere in Healdsburg. <laughs> so I was spared. So I'm working on those two things and I'm trying to cut back on other kinds of writing so that I have time to do those.
0: Ellen McCoy, she associated wine with the adult world, but then she found that world to be constantly changing. Thank you for adding some perspective.
1: Thank you, Levy. I really appreciate it.
0: Ellen McCoy of Bloomberg News and Zester Daily. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett.